everyone in this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. We are offended. <laughs> I guess, but not really, like not at all. <laughs> what are we offended uh, we, about? What's that? What am I supposed to be offended about? Uh, Ian. Me. Because oh, right. he's so inflammatory and hates curators and museums. What yeah. if I, too, also hate curators and museums? <laughs> you know, Danny, I feel like that's not great job security for you to say that as curators sitting in your office in a museum. Like, I can say that because I've got the retirement status. <laughs> I mean, it, it raises some questions of, like, self-identity and self-loathing. But, you know, other than you've that. Only, you've only fun. been curator for six months. And you this week, Ian, we had to postpone this a half hour because he had a chiropractor's appointment. Ooh, that's been rough work. I know. He, been, he's falling apart. Like, it's only been six months. Um, but we have Ian McCollum on today from Forgotten Weapons, and he obviously needs no introduction. But if you haven't seen the video that he recently did, what was it called? Uh, it Belongs in a Museum, or Ian Offends Curators. <laughs> so I would like to just start off by saying I wasn't offended once. Like, I really wasn't. Like, I was like, I mean, you're not wrong, <laughs> you know, um, but we felt like Danny and I had a little chit chat offline about this and we kind of felt like there were some places where you didn't go hard enough, but oh, we can, uh, just All because right. we know the inner workings of, you know, how it actually goes down inside, you know, um, and we can only say this to some extent, you know, because. So what you're, museums. what you're saying is now we're really going to dish out on museums. I think so. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I think one of the things we talked about was that we agreed with you, like the sort of your end statement, but we got there for different reasons. So in some ways, some of the things you brought up in that video, I think you identify problems, but we see those problems emanating for different reasons, I guess. Yeah. Um, or maybe maybe there's sort of parallel tracks to get to the same problem, but we definitely see some of the many of the problems that you identified. Uh, I in your video. So I think for that regard, like we're like, yeah, I, I can't be that upset by what you're saying because we see the truth in it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would love to hear what your guys' reactions and thoughts were. And I have a few additions to make myself, um, having read through approximately a gazillion comments on that video. There's some interesting points, I think, that some people brought up. There were some really interesting comments. I actually looked at the comments and it wasn't like offensive like it normally is. So <laughs> I was pretty excited. But I think the first thing I wanted to talk about um, was your assessment of what museums were and what they are now, because um, that's probably where I at least disagree with you the most. Um, and that's only because I took a museum studies course where they taught us about the, what the history of museums were. And um, I think I wrote down, you know, you're accurate. I think, and Danny, you can agree or disagree with me in, in the sense of what a modern museum is, you know, is supposed to be modern being like the early 1900s, you know, up through today in terms of a repository of knowledge. Um, you know, obviously early museums were cabinets of curiosity um, you see a lot of that with early you know, museum history, but at the same time, there's usually not a lot of information that's provided with that. So it's more about the curiosity, um, which would be more about the average visitor than necessarily the specialist, because there's some crazy early museum history where like, you know, it was all guided tours and it was like people who could afford it. So obviously, you know, the class system comes into play, um, you know, but then like they were able to like, I, I'm not making this up. They're able to like lick 
mummies and stuff. Like it's all about the like, ooh, spooky factor, you know, in, in the museum. And so it was all about this kind of like, you know, you could pay for the experience, which like, I'm not saying that we've degraded back down to licking mummies, but I, I feel like it's almost come full circle because while the display techniques, you know, might be more akin to something you'd see in an old gun museum with a lot of artifacts, you know, there really wasn't a lot of information being put out there in early museums. And they were really specifically catered to people who wanted to take a piece of the mummy home, which was also something they allowed people to do was take pieces of the artifacts home. You know, so I think early museums, well, and that's, I'm not getting, I'll let Danny get into the drama of like where those artifacts came from. <laughs> but, you know, I think early museums, you know, were very much about the touristy experience, the shock factor experience. Um, and then they do go through waxing and waning points of, you know, okay, now we're for everybody or now we're, you know, trying to provide a scientific perspective. But the early stories you hear about museums are like crazy, you know, edutainment, honestly. Interesting. Maybe okay. Not the edu part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and it's kind of interesting because that edutainment word is a word that most museum people I know kind of loathe. It was really popular a few years ago. And it was this a few idea years that ago, museums... you probably mean like 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's become this idea that museums, there was like this concerted effort for museums to become attractions and specifically use that word attractions and like view their inspiration as like Disney World. So like that's been the, it's interesting that the field has like its roots in these kind of crazy like licking mummies type thing. And then it's like, all right, what crazy over the top attraction thing can we do now? And in the middle, in both instances, you lose, I think what, you and others want to see a museum to Ian of really good like artifacts presented like informatively um, which for whatever reason the museum field seems to try and like always find a way to get away from I, which is weird to me because that's our I think it's our strength so going back to sort of maybe our problems with the video to to make it contrarian and everyone like, could be like you're stupid don't <laughs> argue with, don't yeah. argue with Ian. <laughs> yeah, but you know, my issue with, or I guess my what I see in all this is museums have they have moved in the way that you've identified Ian, I think, and it's this weird they want to compete with, you know, we don't I don't necessarily view my museum as a competitor with say NRA or Springfield or we're just too geographically far apart. Um, so it's not like I have another museum in town that I really have to compete with. There are some cities where there's a lot of museums in one urban location, and then they all sort of vie for, you know, members and that kind of thing. But what everybody in the field talks about now is like, we're not competing with other museums. We're competing with Netflix and the internet and YouTube and all this stuff. And I, I think you were right in identifying that. I see the problem is museums have decided to try and go head to head with those things instead of falling back on our strength is the fact that we have all this stuff. And in, so instead of reinforcing that strength, we've tried to like build up areas that we can never really compete in. And then we're falling totally flat on our faces for it. Yeah. Really interesting take on it. Yeah. Well, and I would also to add on to that as a, you know, you talk about, you know, the, 
old school gun museums where there were a lot of artifacts on display and people who, and, and obviously you speak very highly of the Cody Firearms Museum and we didn't screw that up at least. <laughs> well, some people think we did, but, <laughs> but, you know, we actually have more, more artifacts on display in the new museum than we did in the old museum. Um, you know, and a lot of that, you know, comes from the natural history museum methodology of like you said with the birds, you know, like every species of bird. But I think there's a, there's an inaccurate, in my opinion, romanticism of those old types of displays um, coming from someone who worked in one of those old types of museums <laughs> that was literally stagnant from like the 19 like 1991 to you know, when we when we redid the museum, actually the museum in the 80s, if you look at all pictures, was far more interesting than the one that was in the 90s, um, back when it was the Winchester Arms Museum. And um, I think that coming from that museum, I feel like there was a people saw all the guns and there wasn't a lot else. And if you were a specialist and you came in, you knew the guns like you already thought you knew the history or you actually knew the history. There was very, very little history in the old Cody Fires Museum. And people will swear up and down that I am wrong, but trust me, we have every single text panel <laughs> from the old museum. There was very little history in that old museum and the, and the labels were atrocious. So it's not like the labels were providing, you know, a lot of good information, you know, something we didn't, you know, really improve on in the new museum. But, you know, it, it's this, you know, ro romantic idea of what it used to be because people I think reject what museums are today so harsh, but I would say that, you know, those museums, you know, those older gun museums failed a lot because they refused to acknowledge historical context because they assumed people could fill in the blanks. And now <clears throat> I'll say, I have much more of a, I have much more of a desire to educate the public about the context of firearms history. Um, so I do like the interplay between, you know, immersive experiences and display. Um, but I do think the display is of value. And so I would only call into question that those, we shouldn't look too, you know, romantically on the past, like those were good examples. Because while people loved those museums, and I'm sure people, I'm now offending visitors, you know, but like those 90 year old men aren't going to probably be watching this video. Um, you know, our museum was far from perfect. It had very little history. It was a lot of guns, sure, but it wasn't as many guns as you thought because we were able to easily, you know, over, you know, overshoot our goal of, of artifacts, for, you know, compared to the old museum. And to show you how little people actually read any of the history or interacted with our museum, I, I, I tell this story because it cracks me up. We had this old colonial gun shop and everybody loved the colonial gun shop. It had no lights in it. So like, if you walked in, you couldn't see anything. But on the outside of the gun shop, we had three text panels it was one panel but like it was you know it was chunked up into three sections and one of the panels not one on the end or one on the beginning but the like the third one had fallen down like when I first got there it was not there it was never there <laughs> in the entire time between when I started coming there and 2011 I think 2011 to when we tore down the museum that text panel was never replaced you know, so you are literally like missing a whole page worth of text in the middle of a panel, you know, and, and so to me, that was a great indicator. And that's one of many examples that we had of people not engaging with the material, because there wasn't really a ton of material to be there, or it was, you know, so overwhelmingly boring, um, and not what people were looking for, uh, that they just kind of went around and walked around the museum and liked the or like pretty arrangements.
importance of the guns. But even when Ben Nicholson reviewed our old museum, you know, his he made a very astute point, which was the old way gun museums displayed things with crisscrossing guns and bands. You couldn't actually study the gun because there were shadows cast on the gun. Um, it was sure pretty from a decorative arts perspective, but if you were actually there to study something, left much could be desired. I'll tell you, I've spent a lot of time trying to get like trying to hold my phone around the side of display cabinets in museums, trying to get a photograph of markings on the opposite side of a gun that you can never actually see because it's in a permanent display and they can only show one side of it at a time. Yeah. You guys actually have some double-sided displays in Cody, but. We tried, we, we tried. I mean, it's very difficult because the one thing we figured out in the, in the new museum was we were like, how do you make mounts when it's see-through? <laughs> So let me lay out this as a hypothetical, because one of, one of the things when I made the initial video, I was thinking uh, based on really just a couple of examples, like the Imperial War Museum in the UK being one, um, the Danish Military Museum, the Danish Army Museum was a particular example that used to be all guns all the time and is now virtually no guns anywhere on display. Um, but I think reflecting on it a little bit more. What also went in there was you tended to have like a curator who was passionately engaged in the subject matter of the museum. And as far as I can tell, not particularly burdened with administration. It was like, and, and the one that comes to mind in this case is the pattern room where you had a guy like Herb Wooden who like, that was his, he treated that like it was his personal collection in the best way. Um, and he knew all about, maybe not everything in the collection, but if you went up to a particular gun and you said, what is this? Like, where did it come from? What happened to it? What's its significance? He would know it. And I think it's because he had the time to be able to, you know, he was like the old fart who hung out there enough that they just made him curator. And that was his thing. And that seems to be hugely lacking from most museums today, where the, the curator is someone who has uh, an educational background in museum studies, and they spend their time like administering the museum, which isn't really the same thing as administering the collection or studying or writing or publishing. Danny, do you want, I have thoughts, but Danny, you looked so well, sad I, I down think... there while Ian was talking. I wanted you to talk. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a really good observation. Um, one, I think museums, everybody zeroes back on like 2008 and the recession then, you know, I've heard, I wasn't in the field then of like, I got started at the Fraser, which was an arms museum. And now from what I've heard, no longer displays much of the collection of arms that uh, Mr. Fraser assembled. I heard tales of like the pre 2008 days and like the post recession days. And museums, nonprofits in that time took hit, they're taking a big hit this year. And so there's always been in the, over the last decade, there's been this huge pressure on museums to figure out ways to cut budgets, make it work with fewer staff. And one of the first things to go after like a photographer, like that guy's museum photographers are out very quickly when budgets come up, uh, which is a shame because how do we engage digitally without good photography? Um, but then after that, like curatorial duties, you know, actual, I don't know I'm not talking about the administration, administrative things that you're mentioning, but like the actual 
engage with the collection on a daily basis. Like that goes away really quick because um, yeah, you end up answering emails, meetings, plannings, fixing cases, whatever it might be. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like you get tied up in the administrative side of things and the collections work is once the displays are up, you know, taking our renovation as an example, I spent a lot of time in that renovation and the years leading up to it, learning the collection because Ashley like specifically hired me to do that because she knew what she was going to do. (laughs) She was going to have me do the object list during the renovation. But then once the displays were up, it's like, all right, that's up. Now you have to get back to all this backlog of stuff that you've ignored for the last three years. Well, and, you know, to pile on with that, you know, there's different designations of what curators do, and that's partly problematic. So when I was with the Smithsonian, we would have this conversation all the time because there was like a movement. And I want to say like the 80s. Um, the 1980s where curators ceased to be, you know, object specialists and they started to become academics, like purely academics, PhD candidates um, that never follow suit for the gun world um, because of the academic community's animosity (laughs) often towards the gun world. Um, But they were a lot of, especially at the Smithsonian, they hired academics, they hired people with PhDs, they hired people that wrote books because they were the flashy kind of face of the museum, but they didn't know anything about the artifacts. And um, a lot of times in museums, when you only had it with academics, then you had a big issue with the care of the artifacts because they didn't know and they weren't interested in it. Um, and so you had the position of collections manager, which still exists. Um, not every place has it, but the collections manager's job is the collection. You know, they do the accession paperwork, they do deaccession, they do condition reporting, they do repair, they do, you know, all the things. And they are in the collection 100% of the time. I always wanted a collections manager at Cody. Uh, to some extent, Danny, as the assistant curator, was kind of also the collections manager uh, because there, there, so there was a, a, a kind of distance between the curator and the collection and the actual collections manager. And that was a long time. And now it's kind of starting to even back out. Um, I know that when I went to grad school, they specifically said, do not get a strict degree in museum studies unless you want to be a registrar. Um, they said, if you want to be a curator, then you need to specialize in a topic you know, and then get a certificate in museum studies, which is what, you know, my, my degree was in firearms history and I have a certificate in museum studies so that you were at least capable of speaking on a collection in some way, shape or form. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing, like in the actual like history of museums and, and where we've come as curators. Um, and then you have what we do in Cody, what I did, what Danny does, which is that we're directors, we're not curators. You know, we are directors, but we also have to fulfill the role of curator and collections manager. But I mean, we get bogged down in the bureaucracy. So if you look at other museums like the World War II Museum or uh, the Army War College in Carlisle, uh, when they were hiring a curator position, curators often don't supervise people. You know, they, they are, you know, I am the, you know, American Western firearms curator and I am the, you know, uh, World War One and World War Two curator, like, and and they they have these little nugs of knowledge, and you've got multiple, and then you've got someone overseeing it, whether it's a senior curator or a director or a manager, um, and you 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 know assemble all those people. And here at the Cody, you really don't like we do well, there's only one content person, you know, I'm a content person. When I was curator, Danny was a content person, and Dan, my, uh, Daniel Brumley was a content person, but we all had to kind of be jacks of all trades and, and, you know, experts of none to some extent, which is really limiting for us to know for a researcher, like 
when you you get into the minutia of things so much more often than we do, you know, to be able to even tell you what you want to see. I mean, it's it's more like we just need to open the doors and let you look because half the time you find things in the collection and, and not just you, but lots of people we, we bring in that we don't even know we have because, and not because we're not smart and not because we don't know firearms history, but because it's impossible to know at all when you have a collection as vast as the Cody Firearms Museum. And I should also point out to be fair to everyone involved that like the crusty old savant specialist that I was referring to, those guys never wrote anything down. And so when they leave, you end up in a situation where that guy knew it all, but he didn't write it down. And whoever comes in to replace him, especially, you know, typically these days, this being someone who is not, you know, a, such a, a focused specialist on that particular set of artifacts, they've got nothing to work with. It's not like they have the previous curator's files there are no files. Like I, I've seen some of the data in uh, the National Firearms Center, the pattern room now. Um, like they don't have much information. They're basically building their digital collection from scratch. And that's incredibly hard to do when you don't have that old fart around anymore. So, I mean, I think I've, I've heard you talk about that, like going in and looking at what the Cody collection has in its written records for a, any given artifact. Sometimes it's, it's sad. <laughs> I go, Sometimes. we 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 concluded this on this, <laughs> you know. So, uh, do, do you want to speak at all to the like? Because there's a lot of you know things to be said about the guy that knows everything because he was a collector and then he assumed the position of curator. But I tend to let, be more favorable to the museum professional whose mind is open to learn about firearms than, you know, and, and I'm not saying this of all because I've got lots of friends who are really good at their jobs that are were collectors or are collectors that ended up in the museum field and learned the museum tasks. But in the past, you know, there's a lot of pitfalls of, you know, having just that kind of collector wanting to run a museum. Uh, Danny, you want to talk about that? Because we talk about this a lot. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, one of the pitfalls was another Ian video um, that we won't get into here, but there, there are pitfalls in that. Like Ian said, you know, I've known multiple institutions where like the content person at that institution was some guy that had been there for 20 or 30 years and knew absolutely everything. You could like point to a piece of paper and they would be like, that is from this. It means this, it's writing about this. These are the people involved. Tell you all the details. And it was like their domain and then they leave and all that institutional memory just is wiped out, like Ian said. And, and then of course you get, sorry. yeah. And then you get people that just like have totally made it up and you get people that aren't really that good, but they sort of fit that mold. I'm thinking of a prior Cody curator and not Ashley, <laughs> <laughs> but you. a prior curator of the Cody collection that was like his he sort of assumed like he hung around the collection long enough. Eventually they made him curator. He gave tours. He talked about artifacts, had all these great stories about the artifacts. They were mostly made up stories that are totally undocumentable. His research files were just printouts of Wikipedia pages. Yes, <laughs> like, you're not wrong. Like, <laughs> it was garbage. It was total garbage. You've got a dunning. So then you come in and of course we've had other curators that were much more knowledgeable, but even they, you know, the field has only centered around like this heavy documentation in, in, you know, recently, relatively recently. So before it was kind of a free for all, if you got somebody that was really, you know, 
really good at it and did document it, that's great. But that was really the exception. So. Yeah. Obviously, one of the things that a lot of people mentioned in my comments was, well, museums have to make money. They have to keep the lights on. And so they have to do the things that will generate income. And I totally understand that. And my, the thought that came to me was there are a, a non-trivial number of extremely wealthy people who are interested in firearms history and firearms collecting. And I think it would, one of the best things that could happen, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, for the whole field would be for more of those people to step up and contribute, donate grant money to create positions for people to do documentation, research, to be sort of know, collections manager slash resident scholar, to be able to go into museums and spend their time making sure that the information is, is found and preserved. Yeah, and you know we fundraised you know the the entire project, and I will say it was a little disconcerting how little money we got from actual gun people and how much money we got from people who thought who really believed in what we were doing, even though they weren't gun people. Um, so it's unfortunate because I know that money's out there; it's just hard to seem to get it. Um, and from my experience at Cody, you know, a lot of people want to fund projects. Like they want to find like something that they can put their name on, you know, and the person is not necessarily, unless it's the endowed curator position, you know, a person's not necessarily, you know, a, a, a project. And so, you know, you, you, it can be difficult to fund individual positions um, that way. Uh, but there are, I mean, some museums do have historians. Uh, like we now have a historian of the center uh, who was the curator of the Buffalo Bell Museum and now he's the historian of the entire center. Um, so there are positions, like my position theoretically could be a research position if I were still located in Cody. Um, you know, so curator emerita, senior firearms scholar. So, you know, I could be, if I were living in Cody, coming in and researching the collections all the time. Um, you know, so there are those types of things that exist. You know, it's just like, I wouldn't say like we have to, you know, keep our doors open because I feel like, you know, that's true, but at the same time, that's not consciously in our minds, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with the museum, I think it's just the understaffing and, and the reality of the fact that we still have to care for the collection while doing things for the public. And it's just that we're spread far too thin uh, to really do anything super well. And I think that's endemic to museums in general, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah, it really is. And, you know, there's this is true for non-firearms museums firearms collections take your pick but the number of like you often hear about museums having these gigantic endowments you know tens of millions hundreds of millions of dollars and you think well they're doing fine um and to some regards that does mean that they're going to stay open but often those endowments are like given for a specific wealthy person's like pet project like ashley mentioned they want to fund a project and then like nobody names the HVAC, you know, nobody's like, I want to endow the HVAC system. Someday I'm <laughs> no. going to endow toilets. Like just. <laughs> yeah. Nobody wants to endow a toilet. I think you could have a really successful grant program. Like it costs like a thousand dollars to endow a toilet for a year. I don't know what the number would be. And like people would sign up for that. And in, in today's like social media age, people would totally do it. But, and, and staff is one of those things that nobody really, for whatever reason, except for very high profile, like director level, curator level stuff, you know, nobody wants to endow a photographer, but we desperately need a photographer. Nobody wants to endow a collections manager. We desperately need a collections manager. 
those are the kind of issues that we run into and is across the board um, what what happens in museums. Well, so I think, oh, sorry, this, go ahead, Ian. This is going to put you on the spot maybe a little bit because we didn't discuss this beforehand, but what what kind of value would it, what kind of donation would it take? What kind of endowment would it take to create a position like that? Because um, So to give you a perspective, um, this is a Smithsonian rate um, or Smithsonian-based concept. Um, so cost of living is a little bit different in DC. Um, in order for me, when, when we were discussing, like if I didn't know I was going out to Cody, the curator of the Smithsonian wanted to keep me at the Smithsonian in order to uh, hire me um, as just like a, a worker bee, um, you know, maybe assistant curator, maybe collections manager at the Smithsonian. I think he said that they needed $3 million. Um, because like, if you think about it, like, um, I know I'm just like blowing out numbers. So don't say this is what the Smithsonian pays people. I'm just, uh, cause it was like, it was like over 10 years ago. So, um, but like, it was like, if, if you're paying someone $70,000 a year, um, which you would be not a lot of money in Washington, DC, uh, with cost of living, you know, then you'd have to like also pay their benefits packages. And then you'd want to ensure that they could work there for three to five years. And so, um, a lot of times when trying to get a position like that, where you want someone to stay for a long time and you know that you have to pay their benefit packages and everything, they do start, they do want you to have, you know, at least a million dollars in the bank, you know, because what happens when that money runs out, you know, you don't want to do that. And because that's so expensive, museums have moved towards hiring people for projects, you know, so they have a finite amount of time working somewhere, um, you know, so that they, you know, so you can either hire them for the project and then, you know, you give them a fee for the entire project or you're like, all right, you're going to work six months and you're going to work on this project. And then if we can find other things for you to do and find other funding, there are not other things to do. There's always other things to do, but if we can find other funding sources, then you can stay another six months. Um, and so I noticed that museums shifted away from like, here's your benefits package position for a lot of things and saying, all right, we'll hire you for six months because I know I've got, you know, $20,000 to pay you uh, part-time so I don't have to pay your benefits, <laughs> uh, you know, and then they look for money, you know, again, and it's, you know, they constantly look for money because, yeah, when I was surprised when they were looking to set up, you know, like a few, if we were going to have you at the Smithsonian, you know, we'd want to guarantee that you were there for X number of years. And so you'd want the pool of money up front so you're not trying to scrounge around. And so for some of those positions, yeah, they look for a lot of money. Bummer. I was hoping you were going to say the opposite, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and like museum development offices almost always take the approach that like, and I think is, this is somewhat outdated, but they always take the approach that we want this position, as Ashley said, for several years funded. And we want to fund it out of the money the endowment is going to, like the investments in that endowment are going to generate. So it has to be a huge endowment because they don't actually want to pull the money out of the endowment. They want to pull it off the interest, the endowment gains, which is, I mean, it, it makes it nearly impossible to convince somebody. I mean, how many donors can you find that are like ready to write a $3 million check for one person to work? It, it seemed the ratio, probably all your listeners are going to be like, wow, that's really crazy. But that's the mindset you run into more often than not is we want this. If this donor gives us this money and then never comes back, you know, and we can still, what are we doing? Yeah. Which so should we shift gears to um, questions of accessibility and also uh, deactivation? Because I think that's an interesting, that's, so that's one where like we agree with you, but on different 
fronts. You know, we get there differently, but uh, do we want to switch to that? Sure. Since we've been talking for a while, and Danny and I can talk forever on the pitfalls of bureaucracy <laughs> and staffing, but you know, there's only such an interest in that. And, and I think one of the really major issues within the museum field right now is the preservation of artifacts um, and the accessibility of those artifacts for people. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to go or Danny, you want to talk? Uh, well, I'll just lead off. Like, I mean, I, I, I understand Ian's dilemma, or at least I, I try to, um, that, he goes to a museum and the staff are kind of cold, standoffish, whatever. You know, we tried to set the tone here that we would be open as much as we can to researchers to examine pieces um, that either weren't on display or were on display. It just hadn't been dealt with in a while. But one of the, one of the lessons I learned and I'm still learning about the field is, and this is really simplistic. So viewers can like point out why this is a terrible view on human nature, but there are like goal oriented people or like objective oriented. And then there's like process oriented people in a way. I think it's true to some extent. And for whatever reason, if you break it down in those categories, museums tend to attract very process oriented people. Um, and it sort of stacks up that bureaucracy that Ashley mentioned. So if a researcher wants to come in, it's like, all right, well, we have like 10 forms for this. Great. We get to do all these forms. <laughs> and that's a really frustrating place to be for a researcher because it's like, I have a short window that I can be there. Um, you know, I might not know about this trip, you know, months in advance, like the museum might want me to know. Um, you know, I want to try and get as much done to make this, you know, if I'm going to spend all day doing this, how can I justify that cost? You know, for somebody like yourself, Ian, who's got to like, you know, it's an expense to get here for anybody, not just Ian, but for anybody to come out to Cody to research a piece, it's a big expense to get here. I need to be able to do like more than one task to make that ratio kind of worth it. Um, so you got, you know, a, from that perspective, a researcher is trying to get a lot done. A museum person is trying to slow things down. Of course, a museum as an institution likes to think in very long term. When we think about the life of an artifact, we're thinking in decades and centuries numbers, not years numbers. Um, and so that always, that all comes together to sort of butt heads. And I think a lot of institutions, it gets easier to say no and not deal with it than go through the process every time. And so you really have to win them over. And that's really unfortunate because these collections should be accessible. And if museums are going to take the approach, like we talked about earlier of being more attraction and general audience oriented, which I don't think they should. But if they're going to take that, then I think they owe it to some degree to like, all right, we're still stewards of all these pieces we're not using. We have to make them accessible some other way. And by and large, they've done the first half, but not the second half. Yeah. And it's Danny and I talked about the other day, you know, my personal, so like I'm all about the immersive museum experience. I really am. Um, and that's more geared towards uh, museums that are not in sites of any historical significance. Um, I'm a big historic site person because I think the power of place is really interesting and, and powerful. Um, but when you're at a museum, which has just been erected in the middle of a city or in Cody, Wyoming, um, sorry, my dog just like 
hit something really weird over there and it made a loud noise. Anyways, I digress. Uh, but when you just erect a museum somewhere, you know, that's not necessarily, you know, historically relevant to the artifacts inside. I like the immersive experience because it almost draws you like you're in that place, um, even if you can't physically be there. Um, and I, I think it helps contextualize the artifacts that are there. However, I think that museums need to be two-pronged, which is the immersive public facing, general admission, cool experience where you learn, you know, you learn history, there's some artifacts, um, you know, there's interactives. But then I think that we need to take the idea of an archive, which is a paper-based, uh, you know, repository of information and convert that archive to being something that's also oriented towards 3D objects. So you've got the museum, which is the little, you know, actual experience and then you've got uh, basically a big research library of the artifacts in your collection that can't be on display and that you've got someone working in the museum and doing all that and that are focused on the education you know aspect of it and how you disseminate that education to the public and then you've got the you know the you know, old gun guys and the people that specialize, you know, that are sitting in the research library that they, that, you know, what they do is they could do maybe, you know, a tour a day if the public wants to go over there and see that, or if, you know, somebody wants to have both experiences, but they're there specifically so people can see the artifacts if that's the experience they want, or if they want to research the artifacts. So I think museums should completely become, I, I don't think either route of museums nowadays is wrong. I think that you just need both. I to make it a functional institution. And there's nothing aside from piles of money that would prevent a museum from embracing both aspects. You're right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the one negative of a lot of museum belief is that, uh, well, one, you, you know, you don't want something on display to defend museum people. You don't want something on display all day, every day in the light. You know, yeah, we regulate light levels and yes, we, you know, filter out things where we can and all that stuff. But I mean, like, imagine like a velvet, Actually, I don't have to imagine because it was on display for like 30 years in, in Cody, you know, before without regulation of light levels to the extent that we do it nowadays. You know, you, you so your gun may not fade, but, you know, your presentation box would uh, because velvet fades faster, you know, and at a, you know, at a lower foot candle. And so, like, you know, there are the desire to rotate and keep things in dark storage for the protection of the artifact. But I think that museum people hide behind that reality to not, <laughs> you know, necessarily showcase things. Um, so there are genuine reasons why, you know, we'd want to not keep things on display at all times, all the time. Um, but I think that, you know, if it was in a research library, it could be in dark storage and it could be something that gets brought out when somebody asks or, you know, the lights are only on when people are in the space, you know, and that kind of thing. So there are ways around it that I think a lot of museum people would probably well, push back on. You know, the, the NFC is actually kind of like that, where they have the Royal Armory's Public Museum, which is very much of a, a general interest, very basic um, sort of museum. And then they have the National Firearms Center, which is the, the all guns all the time collection without any glass. And that's the appointment only for researchers. And frankly, thinking about it, they've done a pretty decent job of setting up what you're talking about uh, with a couple limitations, one of them being a tremendous amount of, of British bureaucracy in order to get an appointment. Um, yeah. And potentially, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I was hoping going into this not to name any museum specifically, because I don't want to make it sound like I'm singling out anybody, but. Um, because we all suck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, I can blame Herb Wooden for not writing down his stuff. Like uh, <laughs> the downside there is it's they're not a, a lot of the artifacts they don't have uh, a deep knowledge about because that's just been lost over time. So if you're going to go in there, you have to go in there kind of knowing what you're looking to do and, and take the, the information in with you. Yeah. But, but they do have that two pronged thing where they're able to protect the, the vast bulk of the collection and also make it available to people um, and have a museum on the side. Now they're government funded, um, which I would assume takes some of the, the burden off, but not all. Um, I know there are always, there's always talk about the government maybe just deciding that they don't care about the, the gun collection and getting rid of it. Yeah. Um, and the there's problem- pros and cons of government museums. You know, pro in the United States, you can collect whatever. Uh, con, do you, you know, when it's government money, um, it gets spread around. And if the government doesn't love guns so much, it doesn't go to the guns as much. And the, when something is government funded, um, at least, you know, from what I experienced, you know, with the Smithsonian, if the government has to cut funds in general, they start with the museum. The museum is one of the first things that, that goes. And so that was also one of the big issues with the Smithsonian um, was I, in talking to my first boss, who was the Department of Botany. <laughs> Don't even ask. Um, but uh, he was saying, you know, the problem is, is there's a real lack of leadership right now in the different departments because you've got the people, the old guard who's been there forever and they, they're basically tenured, like they can't be fired. And then you've got the new guard who are all contractors, you know, they don't, you know, they work for the Smithsonian, but they don't and they're disposable. So as soon as the, you know, as soon as the money runs out or they cut funding, they cut the contractors because you can't cut the actual employees or they're, you know, reusable. So a contractor might go, I really want to do work in the gun vault. And then, you know, someone can come and say, okay, but like, now I need you to go work in the Muppets section, which is a real thing. Uh, (laughs) They have Muppets. Um, You know, so like, you know, the, the contractor really can't, choose to specialize as much as they might want because they could be pulled for another project and then they they're disposable. So they, you know, go away. So now you've got someone who's about to retire and literally no one there to take their place, you know? And so that's, you know, a big issue with, I think probably museums in general, but I know government museums really difficult because they don't want to hire a million government employees because they're harder, you know, they're harder to let go in the in times when they need to and contractors are a lot easier to do that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, well, yeah. I was going to talk about. I was going to bring oh. up one top. I don't know if you were going to bring it up, Ashley, or not. Sorry, this is. I just like advertise the American Society of Arms oh. Collectors. I I wrote on the back of their address book. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Danny. So one of the issues we haven't really hit on that I think colors everything we've talked about so far. So we've talked about all this in sort of this neutral commentary. Like, I mean, obviously we've ragged on museums, but like we've assumed everyone's good faith intention in (laughs) our conversation so far. Yes. And so the giant caveat to all this, that is probably bigger. The elephant is bigger than the room itself in this case, I think is that by and large museum people do not like firearms and some are just merely ambivalent to them. Some are extremely active, like bringing up firearms to give an example, Ashley and I went to a museum conference and we presented our project as like a conference presentation with some other curators talking about the renovation, talking about firearms and museums, had a university professor 
that's well known in the field had um, a national level, another yeah. national level institution as part of the panel. And a I local the art audience. museum. Right. Oh yeah. And, and an art museum was part of this panel. And I sat in the audience and like the daggers being stared at the panelists and the questions afterward were so condescending and so openly hostile that it was just, it was remarkably unprofessional. Ashley and I commented, this was, there was actually, it was really funny because the museum field preaches all these like wonderful concepts and very rarely carries them out to any sort of efficient way because there was a gun show at the same place, like the same weekend and all the museum people there you could tell just detested the idea that there was a gun show happening in the same conference center that weekend. Like it was a more, (laughs) it was such a more welcoming place than that. You know, all these museum people that present accessibility and inclusion and all this stuff, the gun show was a far more welcoming place to be than that museum conference was. They just, they hated the idea that we would talk about guns in museums and that colors, you know, in the past we've had, it colors our stuff even here. You think of Cody and being in Wyoming is a very, you know, pro-gun place and people would love that we have the museum here. We're two staff members in an institution of probably 70 per, like permanent year-round staff. And the CFM has two dedicated staff members. There's also the records office, which has their own separate staff. So we just, get a half dozen people that are like dedicated to the firearms resources we have here. Just for the folks who are watching this, who don't understand that it's because the CFM is five museums all under one roof and the Cody right yeah so we're part of the Buffalo Bill Center is five museums so you got one gun museum and then four other museums that's why you're we're outnumbered (laughs) yeah I I mean we kind of are and like you know how do I've watched in the past a person that is you know we mentioned fundraising there's lots of people that like guns that have money like we should be able to connect with them. We have dedicated fundraising staff. We have people like myself and Ashley. How do you fundraise with someone who is nearly contemptible of guns, who is tasked to be your fundraising officer? Like it just doesn't happen. People, gun people, anybody who has a like interest in a hobby, if you bring in someone to fundraise who openly dislikes that hobby, they're going to figure it out. And they're going to feel it. They're gonna feel it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's what happens in the field. And it colors absolutely. So you get a, you go to a museum to do a video and they have a cool gun. If you run into a registrar who doesn't like guns, like they're going to shut it down. Yeah. And it colors absolutely everything we've talked about. Yeah. And, I've absolutely had that happen. Yeah. And that's, you know, that actually was a better segue into, you know, what ultimately comes down to it, which is, you know, the destruction or the deactivation, deactivation and the willingness of a lot of museum professionals to just let it go. Uh, and let and let them do it, um, which is quite disturbing. And the and the one that you know, Danny and I preach about the most, and and some of our colleagues don't necessarily agree with us. Some of our colleagues do agree with us, but they're not they they it's not what the policy is, and they can't change it. Um, and that's you know what I believe is a slippery oh it's a slippery slope. Ooh, I use the word sorry, uh, but it, I mean I think that it's completely inexcusable, and that is the removing of firing pins in museums. And I, I strongly believe that. And I, there are a lot of gun collectors that are like, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal because if you were a curator of pottery or of any other thing, would you allow someone to take a sliver of a piece of your artifact off? You know, that doesn't actually, you know, really truly deactivate the firearm forever, you know? And 
And, and the reason I like, I have like, you know, trauma from it is because when I was at the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian, like in the eighties decided, you know, like we're going to remove the firing pins from all 7,000 firearms, which by the way, is a friggin' museum paperwork nightmare because now you have a little baggie with a little pin that has to stay with the artifact and you can't lose it because it's a piece of the artifact. And, you know, and so then when I was there, there was somebody whose sole, there was an intern whose sole job it was, was to hammer the fucking firing pins back in the guns because they realized that that was like way too much paperwork you know anyways and then it wasn't like it didn't matter you know you should have your cases be secure enough that you know you can you know display your artifact you know safely and you know i know that a lot of people have the smash and grab theory but like let's be real like if you're gonna do something more likely you know you're gonna get it outside the building and come in and not try to deal with the hassle unless you're trying to steal the artifact which you could have for any artifact you know you're less likely to try to use those artifacts you know in a violent circumstance you know in a shooting circumstance in the moment than to just bring it in you know, you're saying, so, you're saying demolition man is not real. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, the removal of the firing pin has seemed to become in the museum this like acceptable way of handling firearms as artifacts. Um, and to the point where we've had to argue with um, art, you know, couriers, like courier companies for museums. They're like, well, are the firing pins removed? It's like somebody told them one thing and they were like, now they're experts, you know? Well, are the firing pins removed? And it's like, it's irrelevant. Like it really is irrelevant because anybody can put, you know, a firing pin back in the gun, you know, and it's, a lot of paperwork and you can actually damage the firearm in the process, especially with a lot of our firearms that have never been fired. You know, taking the firing pin is going to do, you know, a little bit, but it's still going to do a little bit of damage, which in any other field in the museum world would make a museum curator just, you know, want to die. And somehow it's a, it's okay and a necessary evil with firearms collections. And that's a total double standard. And I'm angry. You can tell that I, I just get so frustrated over it that we can just say, oh, you know, that's not OK for anything else. But for this, because, you know, they're dangerous, you know, when they're like paperweights in museums, especially since, you know, we don't really have ammo a lot of the times, you know, it's 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 just a crazy mindset to me. And that to me can also then turn into, okay, well, today it's just the firing pin, but tomorrow we have to deactivate it, like you said, Ian, and that deactivation process changes all the freaking time, you know, so today it's, you know, just shove something down the barrel, and tomorrow let's cut the barrel in three pieces, and then, you know, it's it's like, you know, if you don't care about these artifacts, and you don't start at the fundamental that we don't harm artifacts ever, which is like a curator's code, then, you know, anyone could justify that doesn't like guns. Oh, well, you know, we're, we're doing a good thing because it's now not operable. Uh, but with, you can still see the outside of it. You know, it's just crazy to me because anything else would not be acceptable. But with firearms, somehow it is. The irony of all of it is that <laughs> I've witnessed museum people like try and make the argument that like a, for a researcher like Ian that wants to come in. Well, that's handling it. And we really it's a, it's it's a. You know, it's a fragile thing. We don't want to damage it. We we need to limit handle. Like they'll hide behind that excuse, but then if the government bureaucrat says new rule, that has to get its barrel plugged and like you know molten lead in the barrel to plug it or whatever. It's like oh yeah, that's fine, and and it's the the same. It, it's it's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre, and to me, unexcusable. Yeah. I can see how the firing pin thing took off because it sounds like it's not an issue. Yeah, but. Clearly, yeah, there are some guns where it's easy to pull a firing pin. There are some where it's extremely difficult. There are some, if I were to go into your collection and try and do that, 
there are some guns that I'd have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get the firing pin out without damaging something. And then the chances, what when I hear that being proposed as a solution, the first thing that comes to my mind is there's going to be a five gallon bucket of firing pin. No one's ever going to be able to actually put them back where they came from. And yeah. if an organization as significant as the Smithsonian is actually able to keep them with the guns, that's outstanding, but that's yeah. going to be such an exception. Like, yeah, they, they did. I mean, they did a good job at it at least, but that's because most of the collections not on display. So it's not like they're dealing with the movement yeah. of the artifacts all the time. Um, you know, and, and people also may say, oh, well, it's insignificant. Why would the firing pin matter? But like, for example, I do um, extra witness testimony on cold type single actions uh, for civil cases, uh, specifically with Ruger I've done in the past. And I can't tell you how many hours of a deposition I talk about where that darn firing pin is, you know, and, and, you know, and you can see it when you look, you know, at the fire. I'm actually, uh, we ran an article about how to safely um, handle a um, a cold type single action. I wanted to call it how not to shoot yourself with a cold type single action, but that title didn't fly in our magazine. Um, but you know, the photo that was used, um, actually had the firing pin removed and I, you know, didn't look, I didn't look at the photo really before it went, um, because they format it and everything. It's all above my head. But, um, one of our board members emailed me and was like, Hey, Ashley, there's a firing pin in that. And like, that's so important to the conversation of where the firing pin, you know, comes in to hit the, you know, to hit the, you know, primer, if you've loaded five rounds with the hammer down or six rounds with the hammer down. Sorry, I'm so used to saying five rounds, you load six rounds with the hammer down, you know, sitting on, on the primer and how important it is to know, you know, and, and then, you know, where it is, you know, how it fires with a Colt and then how Ruger did it before they changed it to their new model. I mean, like, I can literally, I think it's like three hours worth of conversation in a deposition, just about a little firing pin. So while it may seem irrelevant, like I've had real life experience where it's incredibly relevant. And as a researcher, there are plenty of places where being able to see the firing pin is actually important. If you look at the development of the M16, they had to go back and forth on different firing pin designs, different weights to get things working. And that's an important element in early developmental firearms. Yeah. as much as any other component of them. And, you know, it'd be like saying, well, we'll just throw out the front sights because, well, those don't really matter. Well, there's a ton of information in, ingrained in those. And as you say, Ashley, if this were any other sort of, of artifact, a curator would absolutely be apoplectic about deliberately destroying items under their protection. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, and, and it all got started for like a total non-documented threat. Like there was... It appears that it started, and actually, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like people were worried about not the theft of artifacts, because museum thefts as a whole almost always take place behind the scenes as like somebody trusted gets into the building, not telling people how to rob a museum, but historically speaking. Not us. (laughs) Not us. I will say that. But actually, it was really smash and grab in museums is pretty rare. Yeah. So but that wasn't even the reason because people... the second you say it never happens, it'll happen, you know? <laughs> right. Somebody's going to go drive a truck into a museum and take everything and I'll look like an idiot. But that was like, that wasn't even the reason people advocated for this. The reason people advocated for this was like much more narrow and like the threat of somebody. And I've sat in, uh, I've sat in meetings. This is what drives me crazy about this, where people like wondered if this was going to happen and not this, what this hasn't, these meetings weren't at Cody. This is a different museum, but Museum people sit around and speculate. 
well, what do we need to do to render these things safe? Because somebody could come in here, smash that glass, grab the gun, load it, and then shoot somebody in the building. Real quick, real quick interjection into that too, because the other variation is bring the loaded mag for the gun right. and then smash it, load the gun. Yeah. If you can get a specific loaded mag, you can probably get the gun. <laughs> yeah. and, and there's no, I mean, there's no documented cases of that actually ever happening. Like somebody coming in, smashing a museum case, taking an obsolete firearm and then shooting somebody with it. Especially with the fact that a lot of the guns don't have firing pins in them anyways, like whether it's for the museum taking it out or the manufacturer, you know, didn't have them in when they sent them, you know, so it's like, so now you're rolling the dice that the gun actually freaking works behind the glass, you know, it's just, right. it's so weird. I, I mean, if I'll say this, if, if it's a really bad day for me and somebody smashes a case and loads the 650 Spencer, and like comes down to the office, maybe it's just my time. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's such a, it's a, such a nonsense. It reason, really is, but that's it why really is demolition. Man. What's that, Ian? Yeah, it absolutely. really is demolition, man. Yeah, <laughs> like that is literally the scenario that's being proposed. And you know, at that point, like, how how do you make sure that someone can't grab a spear? That's what I was going to say. Like, why not just like smash the glass and grab a sword? You know, if, if you go down that road, there's no end to it. And yeah. like, you have to start from a position of some sort of rational, like we're going to prevent theft by having objects secure in their display. <laughs> right. Like we, it's our job to make sure that artifacts are securely, you know, placed in the, in the museum on display and that we have security guards and we have security cameras. Cause a lot of times, you know, some museums like, you know, big institutions, like they can have crazy like security systems, like the Smithsonian for some of their like more well-known artifacts. Like I, I've had people tell me like the security and the, how it works. And I'm just like, what? That's crazy. You know, so there are certain things like the Mona Lisa that I'm sure like, you know, you try to get to that and like your cage dropped down, you know, drops down on you. But a lot of things too with museums are the realization that you need the cameras because in case they do shatter the glass and get out so you can identify who they are, you know, and get them later. But, you know, it's just, you know, it's just such a weird it's so fascinating that people can make these arguments and believe so strongly in these arguments. And it's just like, nobody actually sits down and thinks about like, okay, but like, you know, here's a big hammer, you know, <laughs> I could use that too, like a hammer on display. I mean, there, it's, it doesn't just stop with guns if you're gonna use that theory, but it always stops with guns when the argument is actually being made. Yeah. So that's always what gets me, you know? And so while I, there aren't a lot of, you know, museums that are actively destroying their things, I would not put it out of the realm of possibility of museum professionals to see justification in it because they don't respect the artifact. Yeah. And I mean, the, the ultimate escalation are the Spanish pistols that you illustrated, you know, there's removing firing pins, which is technically reversible, but we really obviously don't like. There's other steps like, you know, plugging a barrel that, generally to a lot of people that aren't informed about firearms seems relatively harmless, but changes a whole lot about the artifact, I yeah. think is tantamount to destruction. Um, and then there's, you know, going the whole art and having the, like having those artifacts crushed. I mean, take other controversial art, like artifacts. It'd be like this long running debate about the Elgin marbles and like Britain wants to keep them. Greece wants them back. We can't decide. We're just going to smash them all. That would cause, every curator in the world to probably like instantly die of a heart attack. 
but then it's these are guns we're going to destroy them because we don't know what to do with them and we can't come up with a better way well Danny, you bring up an interesting point by referencing the infamous elgin marbles that if you're a museum professional you've heard all about but that also goes to one note that i made and i know we've been talking forever but whatever we're just going to keep going on it um accessibility um in terms of who should possess these artifacts. And I'm not talking museums versus private collectors. You made the, you know, important distinction in your video. And I think Nick also, um, you know, talks about this as well with the Afghani firearm bringbacks that he's got, um, which is that a lot of the best collections of, you know, foreign guns are in private collectors' hands in the United States. And that's a really dramatic um, and hot topic in the museum field, controversial topic in the museum field right now, because a lot of museums in <laughs> England um, and the U.S. with Native American artifacts, like a lot of things were acquired because like we stole them, you know, <laughs> like 150 years ago, you know, so they end up in museums and um, there's a great comedy sketch about England and museums that you should watch. We can send you the link later. Um, and like, you know, about people, you know, coming in from other cultures to England, going to see a museum and seeing, you know, their stuff on display and why isn't it on display in that country, you know, and that, you know, there's been a big push to return those artifacts, you know, to the, you know, original places of origin. Um, but then you also deal with the fact of, but what if that place of origin is not capable of caring for them? Is it better in their hands to ultimately get destroyed by time um, or by conflict? Um, or, you know, should the... You know, or in the case of guns, by deliberate government action. Yeah. Like, I would never advocate for sending good firearms collections back to places like Spain, England, Japan. You can't. Like, frankly, it would be worse than sending a bunch of, uh, you know, Middle Eastern artifacts back to the Taliban. They're going to yeah. treat it the same way. Well, and that's one of those things that I think is really interesting for firearms versus the museum, because, you know, if you make the argument like, oh, well, we should give the, you know, the artifacts back to whatever country, you know, there's a lot of justification of, yeah, like we shouldn't have stolen this in the first place, you know, 200 years ago, but, you know, it's not a, it's not a very popular topic that gets brought up in the museum world because everyone's so, you know, woke, uh, which is that the realization that not every place is capable of caring for those artifacts. And then, you know, is that very, you know, privileged of me for saying that? Like, you know, it's just a disaster debate that goes on in the museum world, but it's very practical when you start looking at the firearms world where you're saying, listen, if there are people that want to collect these things and preserve the history and the person that want, you know, they'll take it back, but they'll destroy it. I mean, it seems so much more cut and dry of a concept and not about, you know, which, you know, cultures can handle their artifacts or not you know it, it's it becomes such a touchy-feely thing in the museum world and a debate on you know gender race economic class and culture whereas a firearms is just like nah if we send these back they'll get destroyed you know like <laughs> point blank and so it just it's interesting because guns fall into the museum world but then also it seems so much less of a debate you know with the where those guns should be if other places don't want them yeah so I think we should probably wrap it up, but yes, I we, we've literally just like bragged on museums this whole time. So like, I think this episode should be called like, you know, Ian kind of offended curators, but Danny like and Ashley destroyed their museum careers. Um, <laughs> but I do want to finish on, I want to hear from everybody. So with everything we've said about museums, do you still want artifacts in museums? You're talking to me specifically? Uh, uh, everyone. So why don't you go first? Oh, Ian, although I think we need to get Ian's answer for it. 
<laughs> but yes, everyone. Yes, everyone. Because I have a, I have an answer that's thought out, but I'll go last. I think yes, um, but not exclusively. Like I wouldn't go and say all private collectors, when you die, you should will your guns to museums. Absolutely not. Um, and but at the same time, I wouldn't say you know all publicly owned firearms collections should be auctioned off onto the collector market. I think there are, and I don't want to, I don't mean to just whiffle waffle in the middle here, but I think there are legitimate benefits to both sides of it. Um, I think there are especially a place for firearms with specific individual human provenance in museums um, where they are going to be, where, where a substantial amount of their value comes from their historic relevancy and not the mechanics of the item. Like if this gun belonged to George Washington, I don't really need to know, I'm not gonna get a whole lot more about it by taking apart that one. Uh, as opposed to any other of the same model, but it is something that has a societal value and is particularly good in a publicly accessible place on display where people can see it and understand what it is. On the other hand, there are elements of firearms research in particular that require, say, taking guns out and shooting them. And that's something that museums are, even though a few of them do it, it in fact, the NFC even does some shooting with duplicates in its collection, but it's something that museums are absolutely not set up to do. It's something that private individuals are far better off, far better suited to doing. Uh, private owners are much more likely to understand the nuances of what's involved in actually shooting their guns and taking care of them during that process. So I think there's a place for both. Yeah. Um, I'll give mine and then actually you can. Yeah. So I think there's a balance like Ian said, and this isn't to like try and play nice or anything, but obviously like there's things that need to be preserved for future generations. Um, and museums are really equipped to do that other than unfortunately a few notorious cases of firearms getting destroyed. Um, you know, one of the issues we didn't talk about is the idea that we have had a lot of, a lot of trouble gaining traction for the idea that museums should have, a lot of people assume museums have amnesty from firearms laws. We've tried to like drum this up in the field and nobody seems to really care. Um, so like, you know, somebody calls us with grandpa's World War II bring back machine gun and we have to tell them we can't do anything with it. Um, you might have some luck at a state or federal museum. There's that whole question um, that some of these rules obviously need to change. But then some of these items, you know, as you said, George Washington's rifle, I think, is an item that belongs in a museum. Um, there's other really important pieces that belong in museums. And I think we should have a representative collection of things that show, you know, if we're a firearms museum, you know, we try to have a history of firearms. That's our sort of stated mission. So we collect representative types, not just the provenance ones, but I don't want every representative type. And in some ways I kind of see it like the old debate about, you know, like pirating music and TV shows. And there, I, there was one study that's done, at least one study that actually showed pirating increased traffic to the legitimate sources. Um, you know, if people liked one episode they had pirated, then maybe they'd go down like the pay for the actual download of the full thing. It, I don't know where that's all settled out, but if guns aren't out in private hands and we try and have a gun museum, we won't get any visitors because people's interest is rarely drawn from I visited a gun museum and that was my first experience with firearms. It's, you know, a parent taught them, a sibling, a, you know, a, 
a family member, somebody taught them, they had some experience with firearms, then they got interested in collecting. And then when we're talking about like our, you know, our serious specialist audience, they experience guns, you know, they collect on their own. It, it gets started outside the museum. And so if we say, nope, everything's got to be in a museum, these are all historic pieces, then we, we're never going to have an audience because it'll all just be locked up here. We'll get five people a year. Those five people might have a great time, but it's never going to be relevant to the wider population. And like you said, there are really interesting things that certain collectors are willing to do that museums are not. And we learn from that, you know, and we as museum people, we pay attention when you do a video on a gun that we might have in our collection that we can't shoot and you get to shoot it. And we'll be like, I want to see what happens, you know, like <laughs> we're curious too. <laughs> the nice thing about guns is that they are not unique individual items. Most of the time, you know, you, you can't have the same painting in five museums and a thousand private collections, but you can have the same gun in five mm. museums and a thousand collections because there are multiples of them. Um, so now I forgot my answer, but I'm going to make something up as I go, just because you guys pointed out a lot of those things. You know, I, I think there's a lot to be said of, you know, the fact that, you know, historically speaking, you know, museums have never quite gotten it right. You know, whether we're uh, exploiting our artifacts, you know, for uh, shock and awe, or we're, you know, saying that we're custodians of it, and then like behind the scenes, not actually upkeeping our vaults to, you know, the standard that a museum needs to be kept at temperature and humidity, um, or we're actively, you know, encouraging the destruction of certain artifacts because we're either ignorant or we don't like them. You know, so there's never been a point in history where I can say museums, you got it right. But at the same time, we still have preserved a lot of artifacts, even with our imperfections. And so, you know, I think there's, obviously I advocate for, you know, artifacts to be in museums. I think that we need to make some serious changes to the museum structure in order for it to survive um, and, and in order for it to become a better repository of knowledge like you have a lot of times, you know, through like your channel or, or, or Thais's channel. And, um, and I think that there needs to be more of an interplay with the public in terms of not just like, hey, public, let me tell you about this history, but then also the public, like, listen, I know you're, you've got way more time to do the research on this than I do, you know, so how can we work together? Um, and so, you know, the one thing is I would love for things to be perfect, but the world's not perfect. And while museums have certainly fall, you know, fell down on the job a lot of the time, you know, there's still millions of artifacts around the world that have been preserved in spite of our ineptitude. <laughs> I think that's, the, you know, in spite of us, you know, we still have been able to preserve these things. So I do think that museums, you know, are a great place to have them because my biggest concern, and I'm not against collecting, I collect, you know, my husband collects, you know, obviously I'm not against collecting, but I am more concerned about, um, one, a standard of care that, you know, may not exist in the collector collector's realm because, you know, if you are preserving something to shoot it, you know, maybe it'll be okay for 50, you know, 60 years the way you're doing it, but for hundreds of years, you know, there's, you know, there is still going to be some degradation of the artifact if you are shooting it. And so, you know, there's not that type of really, you know, foresight that goes into, you know, every single collector. And so when you have a system that has a set up set of standards, while that system may or may not 
uh, totally, you know, work towards what the goal is. At least there's a goal that we all, you know, should or theoretically work towards. And with collectors, it's, you know, it's like the libertarian thing, which like I'm more of a libertarian, so I don't know why I'm hating on it, but, you know, everybody can kind of do their own thing. And then it really just leaves the artifacts up to chance on if anybody sees them, if they're preserved pro appropriately and can be consumed um, in the future by different people. And so I think you need both, but I think that the standardization that a museum can offer um, is really appealing uh, for the preservation for the public forever. However, I think museums need serious overhaul in the way that they treat guns specifically and a serious overhaul in the way that they function in the 21st century. And I think that the way we are currently moving, the museum field is currently moving. I, Danny and Danny can attest to this. We are very against the way the museums are moving. Um, and I think that if that continues down the road, then I would be concerned about your artifacts in museums. To be perfectly honest, if it continues the way it's going, um, I would be concerned, but I think it'll swing back. Hopefully there's loud people like Danny and I and our colleagues that can continue to mellow out the, the I hate to hate on wokeism, but like it, you know, that's kind of what's going on right now. Um, you know, hopefully there's enough of us that can kind of balance the museum field back out and really make it a good place again for people. Uh, but in the meantime, we certainly don't suck. <laughs> and I think it's a good place that you can trust people for the most part, but you know, have your eyes open that there is a concern. Uh, you know, of people's attitudes with museums in the future. All right. All right. Cool. We did it. I don't think, I mean, do we have, like, Ian, do you think we offended people? I have no idea. I'll be interested to watch the comments and find out. Yeah. People are going to be like, those people don't work in museums. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Right, well, thank you so much, Ian, for hopping on. Um, you know, someone commented on my page and they're like, are you and Ian going to do a video about this? And I'm like, oh, text him like, <laughs> and see. So we appreciate it because, you know, you have such a great perspective. And, you know, although I feel like we should call ourselves the jaded museum professionals, you know, I think it's interesting to have a perspective from inside the, the, the world and how it functions because we learned that we don't disagree, but we might disagree on how we got to those conclusions. And those are both equally valid. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. It was fun. All Thank right. you. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye.